From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, what do you think are the most influential companies in the global economy? Well, I'd say in our digital world, it's got to be the big tech companies, right? I mean, tech Technology influences so many aspects of our lives as consumers. I mean, every aspect, really. And also the ways that companies operate. Indeed. And what's interesting about these companies is not only that are they developing and deploying new generations of technologies, but today's guest has written a book that argues many of these influential tech companies operate in different ways, which is actually termed the geek way. <laughs> the geek way. Well, that's an interesting title. I'm very curious how geeks run companies. Andrew McAfee is a principal research scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management, co-founder and co-director of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy, and the inaugural visiting fellow at the Technology and Society Organization at Google. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Michael, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Terrific. Well, let's start with how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you study? What was your path to what you're doing now? The short answer is I have no idea, and it was largely random, but but let's try to tell a story that makes sense. So I grew up in the middle of the country in Indiana, and I I am old enough that I was a, an impressionable young kid when these things called personal computers first started to appear in the world. And I was the right kind of kid to be receptive to them because I was kind of nerdy. I went to math camp. I always had my nose in a book. So when these things appeared and I heard about them, I thought they were just innately fascinating. And I don't think I've ever let go of that feeling. That's great. Uh, and so, you know, that that's an interesting childhood. It turns out I was, I was once a CIO of Bloomington, Indiana. The, yeah, this story might not be totally foreign to you, Michael. But the, or a what, lot of our what, listeners. Oh, what happened after that, right? Playing with computers as a kid. Right, playing as computers as a teenager, you know, mainly because I didn't have any friends or dates, so why not just keep playing with computers? And then I got admitted to MIT, which was the gateway to this big, broad world full of intimidating geeks. And I went there in the fall of 1984 to start my undergraduate degrees. And with the exception of a hiatus at Harvard, I've been at MIT for you know most of my adult life and most of my career. What was the uh, what was the detour to Harvard? What happened there? <laughs> I got done with my master's degrees in 1990, and I worked for a couple of years and realized that I wasn't loving it. And I decided to go back to school, and I went to the business school at Harvard and did my doctorate there. And then I taught on the faculty there for about a decade. And then in 2009, I came back to the mothership two stops farther up on the red line in Cambridge and went back to MIT. It's a bit unusual to go to business school and get a doctorate, though, right? Most people go and get a master's of business administration. What is yes, it like exactly. To to and and to be clear, you use the right term. It's not a PhD. It's a doctorate. My degree is technically a doctorate in business administration. You can only imagine how much my PhD friends like to beat up on me for that. But I, I, I'm fascinated by the business world, and I'm fascinated by this intersection of technology and business. And when I came back to MIT, Michael, like you know, I started working a ton with Eric Brynjolfsson, who's a very, very, very good economist and a good guy. Very, 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 very good guy. And he helped put more of an economics spin on the work that I was doing and our thinking. And in the books we wrote together, economics is the base. And I think that has stayed with me. So you are a best-selling author, some co-authored with Eric. Um, and you have a book entitled The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results, available where good books are sold on mm -hmm. November 14th of 2023. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Don't, don't be shy. But anyway, I, it is really interesting. Um, I, I was. Uh, I'm. I, thank you for the privilege of being able to 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 take a look at it. Um, and you know, I, I'd love to get into it a little bit. There's a lot there, right? And so one of the things that you talk about it's entitled the Geek Way, and and uh, you know, over 20 years ago, you know, another author, Tim O'Reilly, talked about you know watching the alpha geeks, and I, I think he described them as the people who are inventing the future, which I think he mostly meant technologists. But tell me what you mean by geeks in this. So Tim and I come from the same place, which is looking at a bunch of people who founded the computer industry in northwest in, in northern california and 
geek is a pretty appropriate turn from them because geek went from being the person who bites the head off a chicken in a circus in a circus sideshow to being somebody who spent a little bit too much time in front of a computer screen by the 80s or 90s that was the primary word a de- definition of geek but i think both tim and i want to broaden that definition out and for me and i think the term has broadened out and for me a geek is anybody who gets properly obsessed with a really hard, deep problem, can't let it go, is very tenacious, and is willing to embrace unconventional solutions. It's not tied to the conventional wisdom or the mainstream or the status quo. So for me, geek is a lot broader than computer nerd. It's kind of my working definition for it is an obsessive maverick. And the geeks that I became obsessed with, a lot of them were computer nerds, to be super clear, but they, in my eyes, were business geeks. And the problem they got obsessed with, properly obsessed with, is how do we run and grow a company and keep alive its ability to innovate, to be agile, to be responsive, to execute at high levels, even as we grow, even as we scale, and even as we age. And to sharpen that a little bit, I think the geeks got obsessed with avoiding the dysfunctions that seemed to plague companies throughout the industrial era. And they really wanted none of that. They wanted to do something different and better. And I'm not saying that they've perfected the formula, but I think they've succeeded. And my super shorthand message of the book is that the geeks have given the company an upgrade. Well, let's get into some of those specific things that you've discovered about about these business geeks. I want to pause for just a moment here, just because there are a set of VCs. You know, it, historically, a lot of times you'd have these technologies found companies, and you'd hear this term "adult supervision." You know, a yeah. business person would come in and and um, you know provide the business expertise. There are some VCs, uh, you know, some of whom you, you you quote in the book, who've taken the view. You know, the best business leaders are the technologists. And so, uh, do you have a reflection on that? You know, how often does the technology alpha geek become a business, you know, alpha geek as well? Much more than never. Think about Reed Hastings, who was a computer science master's graduate at Stanford. His first company built debugging tools. This guy is a good old-fashioned technologist founder and when he decided to start Netflix, to co-found Netflix, and keep in mind, the original goal of Netflix was not dominating Hollywood or completely changing the economics of the filmed entertainment industry. It was mailing DVDs to us because they could fit in a normal first class envelope. That was it. What's astonishing to me is how successful Netflix and a bunch of other companies that I talk about in the book have been. And my whole message is that a big part of their success is that their founders kept on working the problem of again how do i how do i keep the growth going how do i keep this spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship to use jeff bezos's term how do i keep this a day one organization because in a sense what the geeks are terrified of are some of the consequences of a phrase that you used, which is adult supervision. And it seems like over and over again, when we try to layer in, you know, air quotes, adult supervision into companies, we wind up instead with bureaucracy and sclerosis and cultures that get jammed up and they can't get anything done and they become kind of stultifying places to work. And the geeks are like, whatever flavor of adult supervision that is, we do not want that. We want to find something very, very different. And again, I'm not saying that they've nailed it, but I think they have made a big, big step forward in how to have the right kind of oversight, adult supervision, and avoid some of those dysfunctions. And I think that's what's interesting about what you've written is there is an interesting nuance to it. It's not you can't run a giant organization without some amount of structure and organization, but figuring out how some of these geek norms shape that and create the right balance, I think, is one of the things that that comes through. I mentioned the geek norms. What are the geek norms that you discover that that, that underlie the extraordinary performance that you've identified? And the way I boil down and describe the geek way is to describe it in a set of norms. And norms, as anybody who studies human cultures will tell you, norms are everywhere, they're critically important, 
And they're the community policing of any culture. They're, they are the behaviors that are expected of you. And if you don't follow those behaviors, the, or, the community will let you know. It's not that the boss will let you know. It's not that you're violating corporate policy. It's that there are expectations for how you're going to behave. And if you are not in line with those, you are going to hear about it, and, and the environment might become an uncomfortable one for you. So in a lot of organizations and a lot of these kind of bureaucratic, sclerotic, old-fashioned companies, the norms are don't speak up, don't discuss the undiscussables, stay in line, you know, just kind of follow the, the corporate rule book. And I'm not saying the geeks don't have rule books, but they believe in some very, very different norms. And I describe four of them. The first one is science. And what I, science usually means beakers and test tubes and, you know, people with, with very, very advanced degrees. That's not what, what we're talking about. That's not what the geeks believe science is. Science is an argument. It's a debate. It's back and forth. We got to get to the bottom of this and we have to do it in a group governed by a ground rule for how you're going to settle those debates evidence, analysis, experimentation, not seniority, charisma, beauty of PowerPoint and things like that. So the first thing the geeks believe very deeply in is having evidence-based arguments. The second one is ownership, is actually trying to make real these concepts of autonomy and empowerment that we've been hearing about forever, and they're a lot easier to find in business books than they are in actual businesses. When you look at the evidence about the kinds of corporate cultures that come out of Northern California or that were incubated there. And I want to say this one more time. They are far from perfect. But the people who work at these companies report higher levels of autonomy and responsibility and empowerment than we see almost any place else in the economy. The third great geek norm is speed. And speed is not just velocity. It's primarily iteration or cadence. How often are we putting something out there in the world getting feedback on it from reality, from a customer, and incorporating that feedback and getting to the next cycle. It's a complete departure from the upfront planning-heavy, analysis-heavy approaches to managing big projects that we built up during the industrial era. The geeks believe in an MVP, a minimum viable plan, and after that, stop, start iterating because that's actually how you learn. And then the last great geek norm is openness. It's a pretty close synonym to psychological safety, which Amy Edmondson talks with such passion uh, about. How are, Do you have an organization where people will speak truth to power. And on the flip side, does the hierarchy of, of the organization, do the bosses show openness to being corrected, to pivoting, to letting go of their ideas, to realizing that what they're doing isn't working and that they need to move on? So that openness is, is a two-way street here. So I put those four norms together, and I, I think that science ownership, speed, and openness are the things that I believe deeply differentiate geek cultures from what, what, they're, uh, what they're replacing. Well, let's talk about each of these. Why don't we start with science? You know, a lot of our listeners might be familiar with A-B testing, this idea, you know, create a, you know, a, a controlled experiment uh, and try to develop some finding from it. And, and uh, you know, that's the, the empirical evidence that you talked about. But you also talk about creating an argument uh, and that just collecting data is not actually the thing which distinguishes. Because again, as you said before, I think lots of organizations over decades would say, oh, we have evidence-based management discussions. Uh, and so what, what really distinguishes these companies, uh, you know, there, there's a piece where you talk about, can we have too much science? And so, you know, designers will say, yeah, if I just designed based on doing a bunch of experiments, I wouldn't have creativity or what have you. So what's, how do, how do you think about bringing this empirically based argument in a way that actually distinguishes a company? And Michael, like you point out, a lot of companies have been talking about how evidence-driven and how data-driven they are. I think a key difference is that what a lot of companies do is have a hippo who's going to make a decision. And hippo is my new favorite business acronym. It stands for highest paid person's opinion. And it's how most companies make most of their decisions. There could be some analysis that, you know, that the data nerds did, but then they tee it up to the hippo. And the hippo essentially says, look, if the evidence aligns with my prior beliefs, with my intuition, with my big hippo gut, Great, we'll follow the evidence. If not, 
We're going to go. We're going to go my way. After all, the reason I'm up high on the org chart is because of my experience and my intuition and my judgment. If the evidence doesn't agree with that, we're not going to follow the evidence. Whether or not it's that explicit, I think that's what happens at a lot of companies. And the geeks as hard try to say. No, actually, that's not what we're doing. I've got a, a quote that I love from Richard Feynman at the start of the chapter about science. And Feynman says, look, if your guess is wrong, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many Nobel Prizes you have around your neck. It doesn't matter how august you are, how successful you've been. If your guess doesn't line up with the evidence, if it doesn't line up with reality, it's wrong and you need to walk away from it. That's that's really what I mean. That's what the, at the heart, for me, that's at the heart of science. And it's important to spend a little bit of time on why science works so well, why it is so powerful. And I think the key part of the answer is it is the best corrective we have ever come up with, the best corrective we humans have ever come up with to our own overconfidence. Michael, I love my ideas. I'm pretty sure you like your ideas a lot too. And if that's the end of the line, we will stand or fall and defend those ideas to our death. Science is a way to correct that overconfidence. And what's critical is that we cannot be left to the job of, of, refining or stress testing our own ideas. That's completely inappropriate. All we will do is uh, reinforce how amazing our ideas are. The group, however, is really good at assessing our ideas. So there's this wonderful interplay between the individual level. Michael, you have a great idea. I have a great idea. We're so proud of it. Get it to the group and let the group evaluate it. It turns out that I think we humans have been wired by evolution, wired to be deeply lousy at evaluating our own ideas and really, really good at evaluating the ideas of others. And science taps into that. It's an it's a group-level process. Norms are group-level things. And it's a group-level process that defines the ground rule for making progress. What does the evidence say? Why is overconfidence evolutionarily advantageous? Wow. I put this great quote in The Geek Way from House of Games, the, the David Mamet film from the 80s. And there's a con man. And you know, con man is short for confidence man. And he says to his mark, and he's trying to get her deep into the, into the game, he says, it's called a con game. Why? Because you give me your confidence? No, because I give you mine. Confidence is a great thing for a human being to have. We really, we follow more confident people. We're more likely to trust them, to listen to them, to ally with them. The data on this are overwhelming. And so what appears to have happened, and this is a theory that I, I believe, I think it holds up really well, is that we have been wired to be chronically overconfident because confidence is so valuable for us. In evolutionary terms, it increases our fitness like crazy, gives us higher status, gives us all the stuff that we really need. But our brains are not wired for reality. Our brains are wired to tell ourselves the best story they can get away with about ourselves. I put a bunch of really cool studies and evidence in the book. One of them that really knocked me on on my heels was this study where they gave people pictures that had been doctored. And they were doctored to either make the people look more attractive or less attractive, you know, according to conventional standards. And they said, which one of these is the most accurate picture? And on average, people picked the 20% more attractive picture. Like, yeah, that's me. That's, that's what I look like. Now, the 50% more attractive might be more than our brains could, you know, could plausibly tell ourselves we're not that handsome, but 20%, yeah, we can get away with that. And over and over again, we see this overconfidence. It's been called the hardest bias to get rid of, the most chronic human bias, the easiest one to elicit. The genius of science is that it doesn't try to train you and me to be less overconfident. Maybe that training works, but it's really, really hard. I think it's about as hard as training us not to like calorie-rich foods. It's just that our overconfidence is that deep. What science does instead is say, great, go be overconfident. Be overconfident about producing your evidence and, pre- and presenting your arguments, but then the group gets to figure out where reality is, where the truth lies. That process is a great reality deco- discovery mechanism. And so how does that actually, I think a lot of our listeners will think, I can think of some alpha geeks and they seem not to be lacking in confidence. So that that would probably resonate. But then how does that work so that the group you know, can change that? Because don't those alpha geeks just become the hippos? The, the incredibly successful 
unbelievably insightful tech founders are not immune from this. And I tell the story in the geek way of Reed Hastings almost tanking the company way back in 2011. Do you remember Quickster? Remember his genius idea to split Netflix into two companies? There was one that was going to be Netflix that was going to stream because Hastings saw the streaming revolution coming. There was another one that was called Quickster where we were going to manage our DVD queues if we still wanted that. Now, that meant we had to manage two accounts. We were going to pay about 60% more. It was a deeply bad idea. It was an incredibly bad idea. But Hastings believed in it, and his company went along with him because he was the visionary, passionate CEO of the place. And when Quickster almost sank the, com- sank the company, and it, it tanked the stock price by on the order of 75%, Hastings who had already published the culture deck. He had already been trying very, very hard with his head of of people operations, Patty McCord, and a bunch of his colleagues. He'd been trying very hard to build a culture where people would speak truth to power and speak back to the boss. And he realized in the wake of Quickster that he had failed at that. And so he asked Rand, he said, why? And they said, Reed, you were so confident. And you're a charismatic, prestigious guy at the top of the org chart. We thought it was a dumb idea, but we thought you're usually right. We're going to go along with it. But And then what Hastings did not do is yell at his employees or say, wow, I had better train myself not to be overconfident. Instead, he did something brilliant. He, he instituted a formal policy. And Netflix is not big on formal policies where he said, if you're going to launch something big, you know, quickster level, you have to farm for dissent. You have to write up a memo, give it to a bunch of your colleagues and say, what do you like and not like about this? In other words, you've got to go out and do some science kind of thing. And I tell a couple of other stories in the geek way about how Netflix eventually got better at becoming an organization where people were comfortable talking back to the boss. It is not an overnight process, and one speech by the CEO won't do it. And to get back to your initial point, the the alpha geeks of the high-tech industries, the alpha geeks that, that I'm trying to learn from, that I think have built these brilliant companies, they are not immune from overconfidence. What the, what the really good ones do is try to build companies that can compensate for it and not let it tank the place. Well, it would... You know, this might be a little bit out of order, but you know, we've segued a little bit into this this norm around openness uh, in terms of being able to challenge the boss or challenge you know the the person who would otherwise be a hippo. And you you mentioned earlier psychological safety. How how do you create that? Uh, because again, you know, some of uh, again we, we we've I think a lot of people have in their minds some iconic founders. I think you have some vignettes as well, where you know people can be, uh, let's say, um, extraordinarily frank uh, when when dealing with others. How how do those two things? Uh, how can they both be true? You can be extraordinarily frank when dealing with others, but the instant you come across as abusive or domineering or not willing to listen, then you've shut the door on psychological safety. I tell the story in the geek way that, that has stuck with me for a long time. I was, I was at MIT by the time when Brian Halligan, who was then the CEO of HubSpot, came to me. He co-founded it with Dharmesh Shah. He was the CEO of the place. It was not yet an extremely successful public company, but it was growing quickly, and he wanted to do some internal you know, uh, employee education. So he came to me, and we brainstormed about it for a bit. And normally, that's the end of the line. You know, the, 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 the educator and the CEO think about what they want to do, and then they go build the curriculum. Halligan took a different approach. He said, okay, come on into the office. We're going to present this to the HubSpotters. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So he set up a meeting. There were about 20 people in the conference room. And Halligan and I talked, and then he was last, and he sat down. And that's the cue for everybody to go, what a great idea, Brian. Gosh, thanks so much, boss. You know, we're so happy with this. And instead... There was a child in the room. I, this had to be a brand new hire. And he stood up and he said, there are a couple things I don't like here. And then he went on from there. And I thought, oh, wow, I, I get to watch a career-limiting moment unfold right in front of me. And I looked around the room to kind of you know, watch the temperature rising, and it didn't. And I realized that I was the only person in the room who found that at all exceptional or even interesting. And I looked at Halligan, and his body language didn't change at all. He was looking at this kid with this very open expression on his face. And when he, the, the kid got done, Halligan said, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. 
And the reason I'm bringing this up and telling this anecdote at some length is that that is an unbelievably strong signal to the organization that, again, the dominant, the prestigious person, how do they react to these kinds of situations? In addition to being overconfident, one of the other incredibly fundamental aspects of being a human being is that we learn from others. We do it consciously. We do it subconsciously. We do it much, much more than we're aware of. And in particular, we have learned to imitate and emulate prestigious people. That's actually a decent strategy for learning how to survive in your environment. So the prestigious people in an organization have even more clout, even more influence than we usually think that they do. So when when people in a room all look over at the CEO who's just been challenged by a, a junior employee and they see him react that way, man, that is an extremely, extremely strong signal. That's not the only thing you need to do for openness and psychological safety, but the things that your prestigious people do matter a huge amount. And so one of the things I tell leaders or even wannabe leaders is the way you react to that kind of challenge, as long as it's not a, a, a jerk one, or it, it's not just, you know, mindlessly confrontational, the way you react to that kind of stuff will, will go a long way to determining whether you have openness in your organization. There is a dialogue about folks who would say psychological safety is antithetical to performance, that organizations get caught up with all these internal messages challenging the strategy, challenging this and challenging that. They lose the edge on executing. They coddle their employees and therefore they're they're slow. And, you know, you've talked to, you know, about some of the dysfunctions of quote unquote industrial era companies. Um, and yet, you know, they, they say, you know, we, you need, we need people to be a lot less comfortable. We don't want them to be have safety. We want them to feel a little bit stressed so they'll perform at high levels. How, how do you think about that? I think that's a misunderstanding of what psychological safety is. And, and this word safety has been expanded to cover all kinds of things. And I think that's part of the confusion. Psychological safety is actually the opposite of a safe space, of, of freedom from being challenged. That's really not what it is at all. And it's also not every opinion you have is fantastic and, and needs to be voiced. If you're showing up and you're just shouting off, shooting off your mouth to a, to a discussion that's supposed to be evidence-based, you will hear about it in a science-based organization. That, that's, a, that's not a valid contribution here. And I've watched geek organizations be very clear to people that the way you're talking is not helpful. It's not part of what we do here. The last thing that psychological safety is not is whatever you want to do throughout the working day is fine by us. In other words, let's say, you know, you and I are trying to build a Netflix competitor, but we hire a bunch of people who believe deeply in climate change and in fixing global warming. That's great. I believe in fixing global warming too. But if they want to sit around five hours out of the working day and debate global warming with their colleagues, I think you and I need to have a way to say, that's actually not what this company does for a living. And you can either get on board with the goals of the company and contribute to them, or you can try to work on something that is more in line with the 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 climate goals that, that seem to matter so much to you. So it's not, it's absolutely not a, a blandly cuddly environment or everything you say is fantastic. It's a place where challenges are accepted and acceptable without people immediately getting defensive and domineering and shutting it down. Got it. Well, you, you mentioned that there are, uh, um, you know, alignment with overall goals. Uh, one of the other you know, geek norms you mentioned was ownership. What, what do you mean by that? Again, it's a, you know, just the word itself is something I think people have talked about for decades. So how, how what, what do you mean particularly here? And ownership is very close to these buzzwords that we've been tossing around for a while. It's, it's about auto autonomy and empowerment and responsibility. But like I said before, those buzzwords are usually a lot easier to find on the page than they are out there in organizations. And Bezos was super articulate about this when he got asked about day one versus day two organizations. And I think he had a deep insight because he talks about Amazon as a day one organization. He's been doing it for a long time. And one of his employees asked him in all hands, Jeff, what's day two? And Bezos' answer was great. He said, day two is when you start trying to manage by anything other than the goals of the organization. I'm paraphrasing. He said, for example, process. 
Did we follow the process? And as long as we followed the process, and as long as our processes are great, we're spending all of our time thinking about the process and training the process and designing the process, that, that's a goal of an organization. And Bezos said, you got to watch that because the process can take over. And I think that is a brilliant, very concise description of how bureaucracy happens. Well, we can't have that happen again. We need a process. And we have to have a lot of coordination in this organization. So we're going to build this, you know, very cross-functional thing. And you're expected to be part of that. And you really can't get anything done without that. That sounds really good on paper. And Michael, I think your career is, is long enough that like me, you remember the business process reengineering craze that started in the, in the mid nineties and took corporate America by storm. And a lot of people who built their managerial careers in that time are huge fans of process because it sounds so great, right? Define how the organization is going to work and monitor adherence to that process. Man, the danger there is that process accumulates like, I don't know, like plaque on teeth or something or like barnacles on the, on the hull of a ship. And it can just get thicker and thicker and denser and it can kind of take over. So I love Bezos' insight that the process is not the thing. The goals, of the, organi- or the goals of the organization are the thing. And I learned a story about Amazon that I actually didn't know before as I was researching the book. It turned out that Amazon in the late 90s, when it was growing like crazy, was on its way to becoming a sclerotic, bureaucratic, process-heavy mess because they had an innovation process. And you had to submit your innovation idea and tell what resources you needed from the rest of the organization. And you got one of three emails back. The good one was, hey, your, pro- your innovation idea got approved and the other people who you need to contribute to it are on board and they're going to start helping you. That was the good one. The medium one was your idea did not get approved, but you also don't have to provide resources to anybody else. Again, this is process working as design. This was how they designed the company. And then the Third email was the worst of all. It was like, your ideas did not get approved, and you have to provide help and resources to other teams while still being responsible for all of your performance objectives. Now, that middle email tells me something very deep about bureaucracies. It is great news when they leave you alone. And that third email tells you that they very often don't. And it was just clear that this was jamming up Amazon and everybody hated it, and it was slowing down the company. And Bezos and his team said... we have, to, we have to do something different. We have to walk away from this. That was actually the dawn of Amazon Web Services because they said, first of all, we have to make it so you don't need to ask the IT, the technology department for resources if you want to try something. We need to build a modular and robust and, and scalable tech infrastructure so that you don't need to ask permission. You can just start banging on you know, the, the, the finance module and the warehousing module and all that stuff. The other thing they had to do was modularize the organization itself and work really hard to reduce reduce interdependencies. And here's the weird part, reduce communication, reduce coordination. All those things became um, kind of like a tax at Amazon or a thing that they wanted to minimize. And that is so antithetical to the way that I was originally taught to think about business and about improving business. Man, stop it. Stop all the interdependence. Stop all the coordination, the communicating, the process. All that becomes overhead. Try to build an organization where you delegate responsibility as far down as possible. You give people the autonomy to do, and the tools to do what they need. Now, as part of that, You have to define their goals and make sure that they know what they're tracking to. And that's where OKRs and the V2 mom processes Salesforce come from. Those are alignment processes. And that's a process in a bureaucracy that the geeks believe heavily in. But then their mantra is get out of the way. And if you've hired the right people and or and pointed them in the right direction, they will go execute. They will go innovate. They'll go get things done. But this day two process heavy approach, a lot of the geeks that I have I learned a bunch from, man, they they are so terrified of that. They think that's the way to a long, slow, sad decline. Well, let's talk about this alignment thing because there's a passage in here when I read it which I was a little shocked by, but I think there's some subtlety here where it said, the business geeks take a radical step. They stop coordination, collaboration, and communication. Overall, those seem like good things. So I, I suspect yep. you don't mean there's none of that going on in organizations. That Yeah, that, maybe stop you know, was not the right verb. Maybe maybe minimize or trim or, you know, or, or walk back. So what, what, uh, my, my sense is that what you were saying there is, you know the the 
when you're talking about modularizing the organization, all of that stuff happens. Coordination, communication, collaboration happens within that module who is attempting to accomplish yeah. something. But yeah. as you were saying, there are you know, organization and technical means to make sure everyone else wh- whom you need in order to get some things done in a big company can do it. It, it. You know, famously, Amazon has their application programming interfaces where you can just access these capabilities, but you don't have to ask for permission to do so. You just, you know, there's a, there's an online technical door where you can, you know, get whatever accounting you need or whatever, you know, website you need. And, you know, how does that... How do the, how do you hold those two things at, in in your head at once? Which is you actually need communication, collaboration, coordination, and you need to have a modular organization. And Amazon's answer to that excellent question is two person teams, and then later single threaded leaders. Because sometimes the teams got too big for I'm sorry, two pizza teams. Sometimes the teams got too big for two pizzas. But the idea, like you say, is you're part well, what's of a, a two vote? pizza team. A yeah. two pizza team was. Amazon's organizational solution to the bureaucracy that they were building up. And they said, what we want is to divide our groups. Let's say you and I are responsible for introducing shoes into Italy or whatever. The team that's going to do that is no bigger than could be fed by two pizzas, two large pizzas. That's a relatively small team. So we're going to work on the, the fundamental unit of organization is a pretty small team. And then what we're going to do is work to reduce the required interdependencies between our team and the rest of Amazon. Now, of course, you got to pick up the phone once in a while. You have to integrate, you have to coordinate and whatnot, but they want that to be minimized and they want it to be as kind of ad hoc as possible. And again, this is a big departure from what we were doing in the internet era, but there's a great book called Working Backward that describes this process in Amazon. And they said the teams that worked hardest up front to reduce their interdependencies and to stop the coordination and communication were the ones with the better, best results down the road. And bureaucracies can be either hard, you know, you, you cannot get reimbursed unless you submit your expenses through exactly this process, or soft. And there are gatekeepers, and there are kinds of informal custodians of things in the organization. And if you don't touch base with them and go through them, you're unlikely to be successful. So a lot of the geek companies that I've studied are working really hard to reduce both the hard and the soft bureaucracies. And I quote, Devings, Michael, I'm sure you read his stuff. He's a fantastic technology analyst. And he summarized the result. If you can pull this off, he summarized the result really beautifully when he was talking about Amazon. He said, Amazon is a machine for producing more little Amazons. In other words, all these little teams, that just adds on to the Amazon gestalt. And if the teams are outside the company, great, you have all the APIs you need to sell. And if you want Amazon to fulfill, we'll do that. And if you don't, you can do that. Amazon is kind of a self-replicating, self-propagating organization because they've modularized so successfully. And Evan says, look, you don't need to fly to Germany and have a few meetings before you can start selling shoes in Italy. You don't need to go to Seattle and the mothership. You can just spin up what you're doing and go. And for me, that's, that's when you've got the technological and the organizational environment right to actually have ownership. Otherwise, you know, how do you take ownership when you're in the middle of a gigantic process-heavy bureaucracy? What does that even look like? I tell all these vivid anecdotes in the book about people caught in the middle of these things and they just want to get their work done. And all they do is sit in the weekly meeting where they go through the latest checklist of whatever and it feels like nothing ever happens. And we've actually been fortunate to have Ben Evans as a, as a guest on the podcast previously. But I'm curious because if you have all these modules, all these you know small companies that you've created within your own company, at some point you do have to make choices. You know what is going to show up first on the mobile app? What's going to be on the you know web page when you open it up? How do you do that if you have all of these entrepreneurial uh, units, you know, working to to get things done? I think you set up a, a team that determines the ranking of stuff or the appearance of stuff on the website. You, you, have, you have another team that's responsible for that. And they don't have to go get approval from everybody else, and we judge them based on their results. So these, these, these swarms, these teams can have some hierarchy built into them, of course, but the fundamental idea is that we are going to devolve down and we're going to make sure that people understand what the overall goals of the company are, the organization are, and how they fit into that and then go and then just let them go. 
you know, this this book is primarily about culture, and uh, you do spend some time talking about just how important status and prestige is, and the way that that causes, you know, both maladaptive behaviors within organizations, as well as the way you can leverage those things in order to create higher performance. But you know, again, in in this case that you're talking about, you have all of these, you know, small fighting units, you might say, who are who, who are fighting for status or prestige. And don't you end up with these same types of dynamics that you do within, as you said, sclerotic bureaucracies? I, I don't think so, or I hope not. And Michael, like you say, we human beings want status. We want it a lot. All social animals, all social vertebrates want status because status is the way to have high fitness. It's really just that simple. So think about everything from chickens to elephant seals to chimpanzees. These are all social animals. And wow, do they have very, very, very clear status hierarchies, very hard fought. We humans, we have richer forms of status. But the idea that, we, that we've risen past that, we've evolved out of desiring status, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. We are ultra-social creatures. We, we crave status. There's a great book that I quote from a lot by Will Storer called The Status Game, where he just drives this point home. Our desire for money seems to level off. Our desire for power seems to level off. Our desire for status appears to be absolutely insatiable. So you bring up this point, how, how, do, we rec- how do we square that with the fact that the organization has its own goals and people might not automatically go along with them. What the geeks try to do is take away opportunities for status that are not aligned with the goals of the organization. So for example, what that means is that you they work very hard so that I do not have the, the right or the formal or the informal ability to block what you're doing. Because the instant that comes in, and that's that's all over the place in coordination-heavy, process-heavy organizations, you got to go through me to get to get your budgetary request approved or to get the the resources that you need. Great, that is a very very clear kind of status to me, and there's no guarantee that I'm going to use that power in the best interest of the company. I'll probably use it to acquire more status. I'm not going to let go of my fiefdom voluntarily. So. They work very hard to take away opportunities to gain status that aren't aligned with the goals of the organization. I had the chance to interview Satya Nadella as part of the book, and he did this brilliant work. Michael, can you think of a better corporate comeback story in your career than Microsoft under Nadella? It's been remarkable for sure. Remarkable, right? So I had the chance to interview him, and this was one of the questions that I asked. And he did he did a couple brilliant things. He didn't say, "Now stop all the infighting." That that's he might as well waste not waste his breath. What he did instead was say, for example, "You can no longer own a resource inside Microsoft." Now, subject to you know a couple uh, important considerations, but if you want to go use data or code. You can now do that, and you don't have to ask that formal or informal permission. So when the AI team wants to go try to use all the the GitHub code to train up a a code-writing assistant, they didn't have to go ask formal permission. That is a right that you have inside Microsoft. So you can take away the opportunity to block and and to to gain status by being a a blocker. Now, I want to be clear. We're not – the people who are blocking other people are not doing it in, in a very deliberate Machiavellian way. But our, our minds don't work like that. But they do know that this is how they have status in the organization. And expecting them to voluntarily walk away from that is a fool's errand. The geeks are much smarter about taking away the status opportunities that aren't aligned with the goals of the organization. Got it. And the fourth uh, geek norm you talk about is speed. Again, everyone says that their organization is fast or should be faster. What's different here? What, what, what do you see? Yeah. Here's, here's the test. Because everybody talks about their agile teams and their tiger teams and how they're, they're doing MVP and they've you know, got a skunk works. Here's the test. How long can you kid yourself or anybody else about the actual progress that you're making on a big project? In most big projects, man, there is so much room to kid yourself or to kid somebody else, or to try to kid your peers. Uh, I turned in my manuscript for The Geek Way late. I spend a lot of time in the book talking about overconfidence and how chronically late things are. Was it, did I get out of that trap? I absolutely did not. But what the geeks do, and the whole heart of Agile, is to say to the, the teams that are working, look, 
every week we're going to have a a meeting or we're going to have a, a an event where your customer gets to say whether or not you delivered the thing that you said you were going to deliver. We're not going to take your word for it. You can't work on your own for a long, long time. We're going to get very regular, very clear objective check-ins about whether or not you are keeping up with with your with the goals and with the pack here. And if you have, pl- and in most big projects, there are plenty of places to hide how late you are. And again, you hide it from yourself first and foremost, and then you hide it from the rest of the world. The beauty of speed, the beauty of this iterative, the iterative agile approach is that it strips away those opportunities to fall behind, or at least to fall behind in a way that's not noticeable and obvious to the rest of the organization. For me, that's the heart of what's going on. That's how to tell if it's actually agile or not. I, I tell a long case study in the book about VW's attempts to do over-the-air updates for its first electric cars. And there, it's just this classic, really disheartening story about chronic delays and unpleasant surprises. My guess is that there are people inside VW during that time talking about their agile development approaches, but they weren't doing what I would call the great geek norm of speed. What's the 90% syndrome? (laughs) This is a phenomenon that comes up in a lot of big projects, so much so that there was actual research on the 90% syndrome. And it's a pattern where things seem to be going well for the first 90% of the timeline of a big project. And then right when you see it feels like the finish line is in sight, all these amazing problems come up, all these deep problems, and they really put the entire project back on its heels, ba- delay things by, uh, by you know, a factor of two sometimes. And it's so pervasive that a couple of my colleagues at MIT decided to go study it. And they wrote this fantastic paper, and it's got one of my favorite titles of any academic paper because it's called The Liars Club. And they said that they were going around trying to understand the 90% syndrome. And they were at, I believe, an automaker. And they said to a manager, okay, you've got the big weekly status meeting. Tell us about it. And he said, oh, you mean the Liars Club? And of course, my colleague's like, wait, hold on. What are you talking about? And the guy said, look, me and the other team leads going to that Monday morning meeting, we're all behind to some degree, especially as the project goes on and on. And we all know that we're behind. We all know that the other guy is probably behind as well. But we also know that we just have to be the first person, we we have to not be the first person whose lateness is exposed to everybody, whose lateness can no longer be denied. Because when that happens, we have to expand the timeline of the project. That means we all get that extra time. And as long as we're not that one poor person, our reputation remains intact. So it's cynical, but it is the absolute correct game theory play strategy here is to walk into that meeting and try and join the liars club. Now I'll say this one more time. I'm not just talking about overt strategic behavior and Machiavellianism. The main person you lie to about how well you're doing is yourself. And so the liars club can happen in, in, in between your own two years. What the geek norm of speed really does is disband the liars club. And if you can do that, wow you know, wow, are you going to run rings around the competition? I think that uh, the 90% syndrome will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Yeah. When, uh, when, I t- when I talk about it, you see a lot of heads nodding. And you can do relatively simple classroom exercises to demonstrate, even when you're not lying to, to other people, even when you're not being an overt part of the liar's club, how easy it is to kid yourself about the process that you're, the progress that you're making. It's the default. And the, the under- appreciated beauty of agile methods and these iterative approaches and the geek norm of speed is that it reduces your ability to, to deceive yourself and other people, but I think primarily yourself. This book is primarily around culture, um, and you've talked about geeks. And you know the observation has been made that sometimes the culture around tech companies isn't as welcoming or appears not to be as welcoming in terms of just the demographics of people who are in tech. You know, this diversity has been a challenge, um, as you've actually mentioned in the book as well. What are your reflections on that? And when you think about, you know, are the aspects of of geek culture, including overconfidence, arguments, are those things that keep people outside of, of the ability to be in these extraordinary companies? Something is keeping diversity away from big tech. 
And the evidence on this is fairly clear. Business Week did a really nice comparison of big tech companies versus other large organizations and other industries. And the tech leadership and professional ranks are much more, you know, pale, stale, and male than we find elsewhere in the economy. I think it's a, well, I know, I believe it's a real problem. I don't think we understand it very well. And it's a problem because in addition to whatever else, whatever other reasons you have for wanting more diversity, you will get better solutions. You'll be able to serve different kinds of customers if the diversity of your own people goes up. So it's absolutely true that, that tech is a little more demographically a monoculture in some ways that we should care a great deal about. By the same token, however, tech has been extraordinarily welcoming to neurodivergent people and to uh, people who have alternative identities or alternative sexual orientations. I think those things are also very true. That's not to excuse. And I want to draw also a distinction between geek, which is, are you following these four norms? And is that, is that the DNA? Is that the culture of your company versus tech? Not all tech is geek. Theranos certainly was not. And not all geek is tech. We see that in some very different industries as well. So I want to be clear. My job is not to cheerlead for big tech. My job is to identify this new flavor of running a company, which I think works better. And I mean better both in the sense of turbocharging performance and providing healthy environments for people to work in. I, I think the geek way is better and therefore it's going to spread. But I distinguish that from what we see with today's giant tech companies. They're, they're not exactly the same. That makes sense. Well, let's come back to that in a moment. But, you know, one of the seismic events of tech over the past you know 12 months has been the real burgeoning of generative ai as a as a as a topic i'd i'd love to get your reflections on how generative ai which you know by our own research you know differentially affects geeks if you think about people who have higher levels of educational attainment if you think about people um, who are knowledge workers and so what what are your reflections have you as you've observed and you know, yeah, I agree AI. with you. The, the sweet spot for generative AI appears to be higher in the education and the skill ladder than the sweet spot of previous very powerful technologies. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. But I think the geek organizations are going to be the most successful ones at incorporating generative AI if they're open to it. If they and my definition of, of geek, remember, one of the norms is openness, which is the pretty close to the opposite of clinging to the status quo and, and being open and being welcoming to something new that comes in and trying to harness it as opposed to find reasons not to do it. Well, here comes Gen AI, and it is going to be super disruptive. Michael, like you and your colleagues well know, we are in the early innings of how big a deal generative AI is going to be. I think it's very clearly going to distinguish defensive organizations and defensive cultures from open ones. I expect that a lot of the the companies that you and I have both spent a lot of time studying are going to be comparatively quite successful with Gen AI because of their norm of openness. Got it. Well, if you don't mind, let's uh, wrap up with just a, a lightning round of quick questions, quick answers, and you let's can feel it. free to pass if you like. Yep. What's your favorite source of information about developments in technology? Twitter slash X. What's your favorite source of information about developments in management? Twitter slash X. Which current non-tech company best embodies the geek way? Bridgewater is in some ways a, a, a very geeky organization because for decades, Dalio has been trying to build a completely open organization. He's taken it way, way out there to the point that there are few, if any, meetings that are off the record or that are not available to the entire company. And he's conducting this wild experiment where instead of reputation being spread by gossip, which is the way it happens in kind of every other human community that I'm aware of, he's making his people assess each other's reputations all the time with this app called the Dot Collector on iPads so that everybody's reputation the things that you know we for informally whisper about: is this a good guy to work with? Is he smart? You know, is he is he ethical? These things are on on the intranet at Bridgewater, and everybody can see everybody else's dot scores about the things the company cares about. Now, I'm not sure if that's the right idea for every place, but 
holy cow, is that geeky? That's it's obsessive, it's maverick. And he and Bridgewater has been leaning deeply, so deeply into this norm of openness for decades, and they're well outside the high-tech industry. I, I think, you know, by no by no traditional definition is rocket launching a digital tech industry. That's its own industry. It's called aerospace, right? SpaceX, in some ways, is an incredibly geeky organization. They've embraced the norm of speed like crazy, iteration, failure. They're willing to blow up rockets. And I do not think it's a coincidence that they have that they're putting most of the Earth's payload into space and that they are absolutely dominating satellite communications these days. What company from before the 1990s would best embody the geek way? Oh, right now, uh, Microsoft would. Microsoft was founded in 79. Who is the most surprising leader that you discovered that leads using geek norms? I'll talk about Microsoft again. I, I didn't know Nadella before I interviewed him for the book. And I absolutely was not expecting Microsoft to come charging back as well as it has since he took over as CEO. I, I write in the book how their share price was just as flat as a corpse's EKG for about a decade. They were an also ran. You know, they were a profitable large, but they were an also ran in the tech industry. And then in comes Nadella, and he has just breathed life back into that company in a way that I, I just haven't seen before. And when I got to talk to him, he just struck me as personally a fairly geeky guy. But wow, did, has he worked hard on putting the four great geek norms in place. What's your favorite experiment of all time? Okay, I'll tell. I'll try to tell the story quickly. Then this might not be my favorite of all time because there are so many that qualify. But there was this amazing study where they put people in an fMRI and had them play a game where they think they're tossing a ball, a, vir a virtual ball, tossing it back and forth on a computer screen with somebody else. But it turns out that somebody else is a bot. There's there's always a but here in these experiments. And at some point, there are two bots, and they just start tossing the ball back and forth to each other, and they leave the human being in the fMRI out. Now, the whole point of this experiment is to induce social pain in that person, not physical pain, social pain, the pain of exclusion, so they can watch what happens inside the person's brain. And when they took them out and they looked at their scans, they were indistinguishable from somebody experiencing physical pain. This is wild to me. It's such a beautiful experiment. And it drives home the point that for us ultra-social human beings, all you need to do to maintain a culture is, is put in place the pain of social exclusion. Follow the norms. And if you don't, we're not going to beat you to a pulp. We're just going to exclude you. That is legitimately and, 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 and truly painful to human beings. That's the glue that holds human cultures together is that threat and that pain of social exclusion. So that experiment and a bunch of others drive that home. That's dark. It's dark, For right? <laughs> so most social psychology experiments are kind of dark. I worry about those people. For what societal problem do you think the geek norms could most accelerate progress? I mean, this is, this is really hopeful, but if you're open, then maybe the level of polarization goes down. Open means being ready and willing to pivot, taking an argument on board and changing what you believe. And holy cow, do we need more of that these days? What would you advise a graduating secondary school student to study? So heading into college? If they go to college. Yeah, if, if they go to college. That's a big yeah. if, right? Yeah. Study economics, study statistics, and study this new discipline called cultural evolution, which asks and answers the question, why are we human beings the only species that launches spaceships? They, I, I think they've gone farther than any other discipline toward answering that question, which is a pretty basic question. So I'm assuming the person is a, you know, kind of a, a kind of a geekily oriented person. Go do a lot of math. You need it. Go do economics. It, it, it's the science of how people interact with each other and go learn about this discipline called cultural evolution. What three people would you most like to have dinner with? <laughs> I would love to have dinner with Maria Montessori. Uh... A writer named MFK Fisher who wrote about food and wrote about gastronomy, but that's a little bit saying like saying that Hunter S. Thompson wrote about driving in a car. She was just a gloriously insightful writer, and I would love to have dinner with her. And then probably Feynman, just one of the most incandescent intelligences of the 20th century. One of my really nerdy habits is watching Feynman YouTube videos, and I'm just kind of slack-jawed at how good he was. And what would be your one piece of advice for listeners of this podcast? 
Seek the company of those who search for truth. Run from those who have found it. Andy McVie, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Michael, thanks very much. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.